In the standard American family of 2.2 children and a husband and wife, if you left 25,000 people, you've affected 100,000 people. So you're dealing with decisions that affect the lives of potentially hundreds of thousands of people, and you absolutely must get it right. Hello, this is Owen Bennett-Jones. Welcome to Make or Break, where I speak to remarkable people who reached a moment where they just had to make up their mind. With guests spanning from across the business world, we'll unpack those critical moments and explore how these CEOs and entrepreneurs managed uncertainty. My guest today hasn't just had a remarkable business career, he's had a remarkable life. Abandoned as a baby by his mother and beset with health problems as a child, George Buckley left his school for the disabled at the age of 15 with no qualifications and no job. A few decades later, he was the CEO of 3M, a gargantuan US conglomerate with 110,000 employees. 3M makes just about everything from household items like post-it notes and sellotape to high-tech medical machinery. They even made the boots that Neil Armstrong wore when he first stepped on the moon. When he was CEO, everything seemed to be going well. But then in 2008, George Buckley and his colleagues watched as sale figures plummeted by 25% each month. The closing numbers on the markets today. At one point, the market fell as if down a well over 700. Okay, a lot of their customers are freaked out, waiting to see how low the Dow will go. This could be the most serious recession in decades. And that means life, as most Americans know it, is about to change, in some cases dramatically. It was the start of the great financial crisis, and its impacts were beginning to be felt by every sector of the economy. To survive the crash, the board at 3M were pushing George Buckley to cut costs and to sacrifice, they suggested, almost a quarter of his workforce. But driven by a moral obligation to those employees and their families and his economic thinking, George Buckley developed a unique strategy to save the jobs of as many as possible. Sir George Buckley, welcome. Thank you, Owen. Let's just get the environment at that time. This is going back to 2008-9, the financial crash, and you were in charge of 3M and its sales were down 27%. So that's around $8 billion. And you faced, obviously, the issue then of cost-cutting and redundancies. And the question was, how many people would you lay off? Now, we'll talk this through, but senior colleagues were telling you almost 30,000 should have to go. What was their thinking? What was their logic? Before the end of 2008, so this is in, say, the fourth quarter, uh, we were all trying to figure out what the heck was going on. During the uh, the previous months, we'd found sales harder and harder to get. It was just much more difficult to to make the targets that we'd set for ourselves and rapidly accelerate into the 25%, 27% fall in year-over-year sales. So obviously, it was a, a critical issue. And the challenge, actually, Owen, when companies face these sorts of circumstances uh, and you're falling, you can see the sales falling. But the problem is you don't know if you're falling off a 4,000-foot cliff or whether you're falling into a four-foot ditch. You just don't know, and you don't know until you get to the bottom. So one of the things which you always have to do in these sorts of times is to try to figure out how long will this particular circumstance last and how bad might it get. And uh, it occurred to me a way that I might model with some of my engineering dynamics uh, modeling this current economic disaster. And it's fairly normal in corporations that if you see sales drop by 10%, you're going to cut employees by 10%, try to cut the 
fixed costs of the of the of the company. And so sales dropped by 25 or 27%. The normal default position of a corporation is we have to cut employees by 25 or 27%. And that was the position that my 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 colleagues uh, took. But I uh, I said to them, look, the 25% fall in sales is just purely a transient matter. The actual end market hasn't fallen by that much. I think that it's fallen by a lot less. So so what you see in a supply chain, which most of my colleagues didn't realize, by the way, was you saw what was really happening in the end market was the economy was actually only falling by about nine. And this was an amplification of the effect through the supply chain as people were trying to get rid of excess inventory. But what was really going on in the in supply chain was, was something uh, very serious, of course, very serious. You know, a nine or 10% fall in the US economy is, is just a, a tragedy. And, you know, you're talking about taking off uh, today. You'd be taking off two trillion dollars off uh, of demand off the economy. And uh, my colleagues didn't know that. And I said, "Look, this is this is how this works." So, no, you're 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 wrong. If we were going to follow your guidance of reducing our employment by as much as the sales have fallen, it would be what's fallen in the end market, not what's fallen here in our in our company, because what will happen is that transient will will ripple its way through the system and would ultimately die down like all transients do, like ringing a bell. Obviously, you know, the bell eventually stops. I'm not sure at the moment how long it will take to die down, but I know it will die down. So we have to respond to what the real driving force in the economy is, not to these transient issues. The real number, if we gave it enough time to settle down, would be more like 9 or 10. And it would be a terrible mistake to lay off 25 or 27% of our employees, which would, as you mentioned earlier, would have been some between 27 and 30,000 people. Terrible effect on these people's lives. And it would have been the wrong thing to do because a relatively short period of time, some months after, maybe eight months, we would have settled down to a different number and it would have been a terrible mistake to have laid off all those people in between, in, in between time. So this must have involved really extraordinary amounts of self-confidence, if I can say so, because you know, you're basically an engineer by training. Yes, but I mean, you, you know, economics has been studied for, a, let's say, a century. And you know, in Chicago, where you live, there are brilliant economists at the university there. Uh, so are you saying that you just sort of thought, I'm going to disregard all that economic theoretical body of work that's out there and, and think this through for myself? Well, yes and no. But you've got to remember that, uh, that uh, economists are people that largely deal in statics. Engineers are people largely deal in dynamics. When you have turning points, when you have discontinuities where very, very rapid change takes place, these uh, extrapolation type methods, these curve fitting methods, these regression methods don't work because they're not designed to handle turning points. Engineers are designed to handle turning points. And uh, the problem when you're, when you're changing from one state in the economy to another state in the economy, there are uh, uh, dynamics that are ripple through the supply chain that exaggerate what's actually going on in the uh, in the in the economy, and that's why we saw 25 or 27 percent fall in sales, whereas I believe, from my modelling, that the the U.S. economy was only falling by about between nine and ten. Are you saying that that's not out there in economic theory? Generally speaking, no. So actually, you're saying you know the economists down at the University of Chicago could use a bit of engineering insight to <laughs> to, to help with well, their modelling. Don't really necessarily forecast. They forecast gross effects, uh, not these sort of refined effects in, uh, uh, in in the kind of way that I had to. And, and in fact, what I did is I studied uh, all of the economic downturns in the previous uh, 107 years prior to 2008. 
And a couple of interesting data points come out of it. The economy goes in, in roughly sinusoidal cycles. So up, down, up, down. And that it looks like a wave. And that wave, uh, historically, had lasted peak to peak, trough to trough, had lasted six years. The longest cycle was 11.1 years. The shortest cycle was 1.1 years. And the average cycle, a peak to peak or trough to trough, was 5.3 years in the previous 107 years. If I took the longest cycle out and the shortest cycle out and said, well, they were just aberrations, that average moved to 5.7 years. And to an engineer, that's six years. You'd say, okay, that's close enough for six years. And then I looked at the standard deviations. Now, a statistician would pick on me and say, you don't have enough data, George, to really calculate a standard deviation properly. But the standard deviation was, was, was one year. So I knew that 68% of all downturns in the previous 107 years had lasted between five years and seven years. So I was quite happy when I was trying to forecast how long this economic downturn would last. I said, okay, I'm going to use six years. It so happened that the US economy went into recession in the fourth quarter of 2007. And I extrapolated this cyclic analysis and said the bottom of the cycle will come in July 2009. Now, remember, I'm doing these calculations at the beginning of 2009. So I see, at least if my calculation had turned out to be correct, and maybe it wouldn't be correct, but if it turned out to be correct, that the economy would begin to Im improve in only six or seven months. So I then knew that uh, if I can hold my breath, if the company can, quote unquote, hold its breath for only six months, this thing will bottom, the economy will bottom, and we'll go up the other side and begin to recover. Why lay off all these people if it's, this thing's only going to last another six months or another eight months or something like that? So, so that, was, that was also the forecast I made. That also turned out to be correct. So that, that raises an interesting question. When, when you were standing in front of all your senior managers saying, this is how I see it and this is my presentation to you, were you thinking, I need to persuade these people? Or were you just thinking, I need to tell these people? No, I thought about how to, to persuade these people because, in a sense, they were the test of my ideas. I, I, had a, I had a thesis. I had a theory of how this thing was going to work. So there was a lot of pressure on me to prove my point, to prove my, my theories, show my mathematics, show my forecasting, how it worked. So I then had to stand up in front of the assembled masses uh, in fact, several times, and I was going to reveal this uh, theory to 130 people possibly 70 of whom had PhDs, and a few of them had two PhDs. I'm not going to get something really stupid past these people. If I can convince them, then the chances are, if I'm not wholly right, at least I'll be partially right. And what was their reaction? Well, a lot of people were nervous, you can well imagine. And of course, a lot of my colleagues are thinking, can George possibly be right? Is this not crazy? Shouldn't we uh, take a much more a safe approach and lay a lot more people off. And then if, if things are better than we think, we'll hire them back. Of course, the problem is that, uh, especially when you, you're dealing with very, very high skilled people, uh, scientists, uh, these people, it's not easy. When, they, when, when you've laid them off, it's not that easy to, to hire them back, especially who might have worked for the company for 25, 27 years, that might have got 60, 70 patents in their, uh, in their portfolio. These, these were the heart and soul of, uh, of 3M. It was absolutely vital that we didn't uh, we didn't cut muscle, shall we say, that if there was any fat, we cut fat. So initially, you were being told, 
you had to cut as much as 27% of your employees. How did you go about bringing that number down? Uh, so we chiseled this down from 27% down to maybe 9 or 10% by dealing with the dynamics of the supply chain when I said that's not what's really happening in the external economy, but we'd still have to cut 9 or 10% of our employees. And I said, no, that's not the right thing either. I said, we could chisel away at this 9% or 90,000, people, as it turned out to be, because we've got a little over 100,000 people. We could chisel away at this in the following way. First of all, in any company with a 40-year service life, you have a natural turnover. People retire. uh, You've got 2.5% natural turnover. Then when you add to that turnover, the people leave jobs, people retire early, a spouse gets a job in California, whatever it might be, someone falls sick. In a company like 3M, you have a natural turnover of around 3.5 to 3.7%. So I said, these people are going to retire in the coming year. Why don't we incentivize them to retire now? Because if we're going to lay off 9% of our people, and let's just make a a rough number, 9,000 people, let's just say, make it the the arithmetic easy here. Why would we lay off 3.5 or 3,700 when those people are going to retire in the coming year anyway? So let's incentivize those people to retire They'll retire happily. Now, when you retire in a company, Owen, a couple of things happen to you economically. Obviously, your, 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 your pay drops a little bit. But if you retire a year early, I wanted these people to retire a year early. What normally happens is if you've done 25 years in the company, now you're going to only have done 24 years in the company. So you get a cut in the, in, in the amount that you're getting in, in your pension. Uh, these pension plans do one other thing as well. If you retire a year early, typically you have a 4% cut in the uh, in the amount that you're going to get. So let's say, for example, you're going to get $10,000 a, a month in your pension. Uh, it would be 4% less than that because you're retiring a year early. They do two things. They, they nick you for the, uh, for the service years and they nick you for this percentage. So I said, we're not going to do that. We're going to let people retire as if they retired a year later. So we're going to let them retire without the economic penalty of retiring a year early. They're going to go away happy. And that's exactly what happened. So we put this program out and there were around 3,800 takers, and those people went off very happy. So now we're down from 9,000 to 9,000 minus 3,700. But that's cost you money now. You're in a situation where your sales are declining, and yet you've just lashed out more cash to get these people to retire early. So that's tricky. It it is. But of course, if you'd made them redundant, you would have had redundancy payment as well. We only used about 60% of the money that we would have done had we laid these people off. So is it economically advantageous? Okay, so get your chisel out again. And where's the next saving going to come from? The next chisel was in 3M's system, people were allowed to bank vacation. So let's say, for example, you had five weeks or six weeks vacation a year. If you didn't use that vacation, you could put it into a savings bank that you would collect on retirement. In fact, in that particular case, the, the company would pay you cash. So I said, okay, guys, I'm sorry, this policy stops. We've got lots of people out there in our company, many thousands of people in our company with 10 weeks bank vacation. I'm sorry, they're going on vacation. Now, of course, you have an accrual on the balance sheet. You're still paying these people wages, but that accrual comes off the balance sheet. So it actually helps the, oddly enough, in a perverse way in the magic of accounting, helps the, the profitability of the company. Are you saying in that case that you, you, you wanted them on vacation because you didn't want them producing goods that you couldn't sell, or that you wanted them on vacation because it saved this money further down the road when they were going to get paid off for all their accrued holiday? That, that, it, that, the, the answer is yes to both questions. Right. And, and, and so can you put a number on how many jobs that saved? 
Oh, that that saved that saved somewhere around another three thousand. Really? Yes. Significant effect. So now you're down to I'm trying to do my maths, but you're down to something like two or three thousand. Yes. Well, we got a little more to go. Uh, then I said there'll be no pay increases for anybody in the company, including me, for the next year. That saved about 125 million, and that was roughly speaking another 1,250 uh, jobs. So we were down to about 2,000 now that we didn't know. That was, shall we call it, the irreducible minimum, and they were the people that we uh, we decided we were going to lay off. If you're enjoying listening to our podcast and feel inspired by some of the leaders you're hearing make tough decisions in make-or-break situations, you may want to equip yourself with the skills and capabilities to make your own difficult decisions. If so, the Open University's micro-credential, Management of Uncertainty, Leadership, Decisions and Actions is designed for you. Visit openuniversity.co.uk forward slash management to find out more. Sir George Buckley's gamble was paying off. His colleagues had come around to his original ideas on the economy and he had successfully figured out how to save the vast majority of jobs he was being pressured to cut. But despite his efforts, he still needed to reduce the staff by around 2,000 employees, which raised the difficult issue of deciding who should go. Once again, George Buckley decided he wasn't going to follow the standard practice of most corporations, which operate a last-in, first-out policy. Instead, he insisted that 3M conduct company-wide performance reviews. George Buckley felt that the fairest approach was to cut the employees that were the least productive, not just those who'd worked at the company for the least length of time. But letting go of 2,000 people is not easy, and I asked him, what was it like to carry out and implement that decision? Well, it's always difficult to uh, uh, to tell a person that they're going to lose the job. Uh, you know, you, uh, obviously, you can imagine I've had to do this from time to time during my my own life, and it's always unpleasant. Uh, anybody that tells you that this is an easy easy thing to do, uh, they're just lying. These sorts of things for me, when I've had them to do, I, I would probably wouldn't sleep the night before. I would be upset. I would be worried. Uh, I would I would feel for this at the human level, uh, and especially when you get to know these people very very close, people who work directly for you it becomes very, very difficult. So most decent corporations struggle with this sort of thing, uh, or and even in, in the end, they ultimately do it, but they, they struggle with it, and I struggle with it too. Now, then, one just uh, aspect of this, I presume, is that you were not saving as much money as many people were saying you needed to save. Did you have to borrow that money? We did two things in this, in this vein. Uh, first of all, 3M has a AA credit rating, so it's a highly secure, financially secure company, had lots of money on its balance sheet, lots of cash on its balance sheet. However, in about May of 2008, I'm seeing this economic thing unfolding. I don't know exactly what it is. I don't know where it's going. Uh, at that time, I didn't know where it was going. But uh, but it made me nervous. And I was sat on a plane with a CFO flying to a, on, a, on a plant visit, going to a factory visit. And I turned to my CFO and I said, uh, his name is Pat Campbell, I said, Pat, I said, I'm going to ask you to do something now for me, but please don't ask me why, because I don't know why. He said, okay, go for it. I said, Pat, I want you to raise a billion-dollar bond. I want to put a billion dollars of cash on our balance sheet. I said, there's something coming here. I don't know what it is, but I think it's really, really nasty. And, and I would rather have a lot more cash on our balance sheet. We had plenty of cash, but I want a lot of cash because it's that old adage, cash is king. 
because far more companies go out of business for an absence of cash, not because of an absence of profit. So Pat did that for me. And so we'd already put the money on the balance sheet. So I bought my insurance policy before this whole thing unfolded on forecasting how deep and how long. But I was asked another key question at this same meeting where I'm presenting to the top 130 people. And the chief technology officer said to me, uh, he said, George, you know, I think we've shown some good ideas on how to cut costs on uh, on the people, how to uh, sidestep the uh, some of the issues. What are we going to do about our spending on R&D? And I said, absolutely nothing at all. If my forecasts are right, the economy will begin to turn in only maybe six or seven months. So I want you to continue with all of these investment programs that we've got, because that's going to be the rocket fuel that will turbocharge our growth coming out of the bottom of this uh, of this economic downturn. And that's exactly what happened. Which does raise this question. Are you brilliant or are you lucky? <laughs> does it matter? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not, as long as you're always lucky. <laughs> it's always better to be lucky than good. But if you can be lucky and good, that's obviously the best thing. If you can, uh, if you can engineer that circumstance, that's the best one. Did you talk to other CEOs who were faced with the same dilemmas? You know, people who were employing 100,000 people. I don't know how many such people there are in the States, but I guess you would know them. I, I, I do know them, and yes, I did. But none of them had uh, any better ideas than I had. And, and uh, let's just say uh, most of them weren't sure that my, my methodology was going to work. So uh, I suppose the, the point where you come to here, Owen, is uh, you might think it feels very lonely. Uh, I mean, you've stuck your neck out. You've done these forecasts. You've tried to convince your own staff that it's the right thing to do. You're taking a risk by not being more aggressive in, in, in your cuts. You're making a forecast on when the economy is going to turn. You're telling analysts that. You're making this public. This is not something you can keep private. If this is a very public phenomenon, it's in the newspapers. Everybody's chattering about it in, in their restaurants, at homes, going to church. There's always that needling element of doubt, which is hanging over the top of your head. And as you quite rightly pointed out, Owen, early, if you're going to lay off 25 to 27,000 people, to 30,000 people, in the standard American family of 2.2 children and a husband and wife, uh, if you left 25,000 people, you've affected 100,000 people. And all the suppliers, of course, it's not just those people that work directly for you. So you're dealing with decisions that uh, affect the lives of potentially hundreds of thousands of people, and you absolutely must get it right. And did you think, if I get this wrong, uh, that's me done at 3M? Of course, absolutely. You knew, you knew that uh, if you got this badly wrong that uh, uh, that uh, you would be for the high jump. Did that fill you with fear, anxiety? Can you just sort of roll with that? How, how do you deal with that? I'm not a particularly anxious uh, person. Uh, I mean, once, once I've done some analysis, or if it's a, a new product that I've decided should be, should be invented and released, I, I always come along with a lot of conviction. So you've got to go out, you've got to show your confidence, you've got to transmit that to your employees, and you've got to persuade them that you're doing the right thing or that we're doing the right thing. Because people will never follow a person who's more scared of this problem than they are. It's been absolutely fascinating listening to you describe this massive decision you took that affected so many people. And I just wonder if you can distill for us lessons that you believe this whole process taught you and could teach us? Well, I think there's uh, several lessons here. Uh, at, at, at my individual level, I, I didn't go with the standard solution. 
I wanted to see, I wanted to find, I wanted to understand if there was a better way. Uh, I, I wanted to understand, could I actually forecast what was actually happening, even though people said, you can't forecast what was happening. And it turns out, it turned out to be correct. Uh, did I know that at the beginning? Of course, no, but I believed it would be so. So it built in me confidence that I could figure my way through very difficult circumstances. So in many ways, I was changed by uh, this uh, this circumstances. I think in the teaching that I gave to other people who were not vested in this until I tried to vest them in it, you know, by by running these ideas by them, they became vested in these ideas. Uh, and, and they saw the power of thinking about things in a different way. So I think there was also a, a, a change in uh, the belief that people had that uh, we could lift our colleagues, we could go out and be supportive with our colleagues. And so it was a it was a time of uh, where the company really grew up, the quality of its people, the quality of its decisions, the tenacity of the execution that people uh, put in place. It made them different people, Owen. It made them better people. It made them better leaders. And, and it created more respect, I think, in the leadership in the company. We didn't take the easy way out, which was just go slash and burn. We thought this through. We took risks to protect people, to protect their lives. Yes, to protect the company. Of course, we were doing that too. But we didn't just go with some sort of straight out of a cookbook kind of an idea. We we wrote a new cookbook. And we got so much uh, credit from, from our colleagues and our employees. And uh, I think <laughs> you've got to be careful about speaking about yourself. But I, I sometimes wonder if after I'd, I'd gone through this and all these forecasts that came right, if... Uh, if, uh, if if my colleagues thought I might have a solution for uh, everlasting life, perpetual motion, and and cancer, <laughs> uh, and of course, you know, it, it was wonderful to feel that, but it was something different. During this time, when I fell in love with 3M's people, I fell in love with it. I was vested in their safety. I was vested in their future. I was vested in not just their su- success, but trying to steer them round this 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 dreadful catastrophe, economic catastrophe. And however hokey it sounds, they became kind of like my children. Uh, it was my job to protect them. It was my job to, to, to guide them, to steer them, to assure them, to bring confidence to them. And it's the role of any CEO when you're in a crisis or, or you're in a, in a change situation, Owen, the first job of the CEO is to give people hope. If you could distill for us one single piece of advice for people entering the business world today, what would that advice be? In terms of, of the advice that, that, that I would give people uh, uh, today, you know, corporations really boil down only to four things. They boil down to a dream, a strategy for achieving that dream. Uh, the next thing is, is people, and the last thing is relentless execution. And I think that uh, the people in all of that are always the most important part. If, if a leader can surround themselves with people who are better at what they do, than you are at what you do. It's a money-back guarantee of success. At the end of a long day, when you're sitting in, I presume, a very comfortable home in the United States, do you ever think back to that little boy in the north of England <laughs> with no family in a school for handicapped children, as they said then, with really very poor prospects? Of course, I, I I do think back to those times. In fact, uh, I have been writing a book on my life. I've only written it for my children. I don't necessarily intend to uh, to publish. So, 
I've had a recent reminder about all of these things. And I certainly recall as a young boy, maybe being four or five years old, having a, a, a book, some sort of travel book, a geography book in my grandmother's house and looking at the photographs of the Rocky Mountains in America. And I knew that I would never go there. This is for something for someone else. And we were too poor to this, to that, for that ever to be, to be realized. And all this proves is God must have a sense of humor. Sir George Buckley, thank you very much for sharing your remarkable business decision with us. Thank you. Thanks, Owen. This podcast is brought to you by Radio Wolfgang for Audi. It was presented by me, Owen Bennett-Jones, and it featured Sir George Buckley. It was produced by John Joe Devlin with editing by Eli Block. The executive producer was Ellie Martino, with support from the Open University. Music